Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Hello, listeners, and thanks for joining us again on another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States and around the world. Today, we continue another episode in or celebration or recognition of National Human Trafficking Awareness Month, January. And we have another speaker here joining us today. Her name is Rosalie Keach. Uh, welcome, Rosalie. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Simone. Yes, uh, happy to have you on our podcast. If you don't mind, Rosalie, can you uh, give us a bit about your personal and professional bio as much as you'd like to share? Sure. I retired from international businesses in 2009 and came over into the non-governmental organization world at that time. I read a book called Half the Sky by uh, Nick Kristoff and Cheryl Wudan, and it just woke me up to the experience of women and girls throughout the world and some of the challenges that they are facing. Just to give you a little bit more background, I was in the World Trade Center when it was hit on 9-11, and And I felt that at that time, the reason that I was saved was that I needed to do something. And this topic of human trafficking was what I decided to do after reading that book and the experiences at the World Trade Center. So today, I've spent more than 10 years at the United Nations as the chief observer for the League of Women Voters of the United States, and now with an organization called ECPAT USA, which is End Child Prostitution and Trafficking. And the work that we do is simply to end human trafficking in all its forms. Our approach is a little bit different since I do have a business background. It's more from a business standpoint. And by that, I mean, we're looking to bankrupt the business of human trafficking, which is a $150 billion annual industry, according to the International Labor Organization. And we do that by promoting and advocating for follow the money techniques, et cetera. So we'll probably deal with that a little bit more in our conversation. Also, I am the president of an organization called CSTIP, the Committee to Stop Trafficking in Persons, which is a coalition of NGOs and individuals that are all working together uh, for many different organizations to end human trafficking. Wonderful. It's interesting because you're the third person I'm speaking with interviewing for the month of January. And big takeaway from Dr. Fraction, Reginald Fraction, 
who has uh, done a PhD in human rights and has some very interesting stories of his international travel and having a lady coming to knock on his door saying she was hungry as a migrant worker in Hong Kong. And he's, his big takeaway was that, you know, we are doing so much to get at this whole trafficking issue, but some of the underlying conditions still exist. And so this is interesting because that's the focus of what you all are trying to do is to get at the root causes and kind of bankrupt the money that's being made from doing this. And so that's, that's quite interesting. I'm, I'm happy that you're sharing that. Yeah, the the interesting thing about the work that we're doing is it's really a a different approach. Many programs that are out there, including the U.S. State Department, UNODC, the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime, they focus on it's a victim-centered approach, which is very, very important. But you have to realize that, again, according to the International Labor Organization, there are 27.6 million people in forced labor and human trafficking in any given day. And with so many people being impacted by this by human trafficking, we have to come up with a different way. Even if we were to save all of them today, tomorrow there'd be a whole new set of victims of 27.6 million people because the demand for the services of traffickers and the illicit profiteering is just too great. So our approach is to really to put together those programs and policies that expand the work that's been do, being done throughout the world on raising awareness and advocacy, et cetera, and to try to work on the root causes from on the demand side of the house, from the profiteering side of the house, how do you stop trafficking when it's occurring um, in businesses in the supply chain? And either you have businesses that are aware of it or not aware of it, um, participating freely or not participating freely. When they're made aware, uh, many rise to the occasion, and some of our partners are, are prime examples of that. We we engage with organizations that are looking to end human trafficking in their supply or service chain, are making their, their partners or um, like the hotel industry aware of how they may be enabling human trafficking, how the financial industry may be enabling trafficking through its investment decisions, its policies. So there's a lot of different ways that we can go about attacking this business side and the perpetrator side and its enablers rather than just working on the victims. The other thing that's very disheartening about human trafficking is that there's really very little that's being done to determine whether or not the programs and policies in place are diminishing human trafficking on an ongoing basis. So we're also working with statisticians and many different UN organizations and and in other places to try to incorporate the measurements of illicit profiteering and prevalence of victims in programs and policies so that 
we can create a baseline which sort of exists with the International Labor Organization and then understand on an ongoing basis how that is being hopefully diminished going forward. Uh, just a side note, UNODC launched its global report the other day of 2022 and indicated that there's a diminishing in their numbers. And they spoke about the issues with the numbers that were uh, generated as a result of governments, member states at the United Nations terminology, uh, not having the bandwidth and not having the resources to provide credible numbers during the pandemic. So it's definitely a worldwide issue, as you mentioned in your first podcast on the subject. And it's something that we really need to attack from multiple standpoints, but come up with a common definition of what it's going to take to define success. And in the work that we're doing with member states and UN agencies, we're taking illicit profiteering and prevalence of victimization um, as those measures of success. So I wanted to insert here, you mentioned earlier the number of victims of human trafficking worldwide. And I noticed that U.S. Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken uh, released a statement at the start of the month recognizing National Human Trafficking Prevention Month in the United States, right, and to bring more awareness to the issue both uh, domestically and internationally. So I'd like to go ahead and insert here a statement from him and can continue the conversation. So he says, Human trafficking is a crime that deprives millions of people of their dignity and freedom. An estimated 27.6 million are currently victims of trafficking worldwide, and sadly, many of them are often hidden right in front of us. To properly tackle this crime, it will take a commitment from each of us to end human trafficking. Targeted awareness and outreach efforts are essential. This month in National Human Trafficking Prevention Month, a time for people, organizations, communities, and federal organizations to join in our efforts to combat all trafficking, including sex trafficking and forced labor. Engaging survivors, individuals who have experienced human trafficking as partners is necessary to develop effective anti-trafficking policies and programs that are victim-centered and survivor-centered trauma-informed and culturally competent. The Department of State's commitment to these efforts remain unwavering, and this month we welcomed our new ambassador at large to monitor and combat trafficking in persons, Cindy Dyer. She will lead the department's global efforts to advance the fight against human trafficking. To that end, the department funds projects around the world in furtherance of preventing and combating human trafficking and supports organizations tackling this issue in new and creative ways. We regularly elevate the issue of human trafficking in our conversation with foreign governments, as well as through our annual trafficking in persons report. Interagency coordination, multilateral engagement, partnerships with civil society and the private sector, and through implementation of our part of the national action plan to combat human trafficking. Through all of these steps and more, we are determined to combat this scourge in all of its forms. 
words from Secretary of State Anthony Lincoln. Any thoughts as you listen, Rosalie? Yes, I totally agree with Secretary of State Lincoln. However, one of the things that we would like to see more emphasis being put on is uh, twofold. One, as I mentioned before, we do not think that the efforts that are being made today are stemming the tide. If you notice, and I'm sure I know it, Secretary of State Blinken is aware, there has been an increase, according to the International Labor Organization, of more than 2 million people since the last time their measurements were taken. As a result of that, we need to understand what is working and what isn't working, what policies are working specifically, and what policies aren't working, and then put our tax dollars to work on those things that are doing the job. And the victims, as I mentioned before, the victim-centered approach is very important. However, it's not the total picture. We have to do a better job of understanding the motivation for perpetrators of trafficking and their hiding of illicit profits. If we understood that better, perhaps we could stem the tide a little bit better too. And one of the ways that I think the U.S. State Department would be a key component to make that happen because they have been publishing the U.S. Trafficking and Persons Report for a long time now. And it was just really with, I believe, the Obama administration that we included the United States as one of those countries that were being measured and rated on our trafficking efforts. And if we could put more bankrupting of the business of human trafficking programs and policies in place, perhaps if that was part of the measurements of the and the ranking algorithms that are being used in the U.S. State Department and the, and the TIP report, maybe we would be having some more success. We want to see those numbers, illicit profiteering, the diminishing of illicit profiteering and the diminishing of the the prevalence of victimization or victims go down. And the one way to do that is to have it in the U.S. TIP report and the UNODC TIP report as part of their measurement process and ratings. And you've mentioned UNODC a few times. I'm aware of the organization, but just for our listeners, just to uh, break down the acronym, it's the UN... Office of Drugs and Crime. Yes. And they are responsible for the programs relating to human trafficking from the standpoint of a global effort against organized crime, as well as um, to measure their the prevalence of human trafficking throughout the world. So it looks like we have several players coming at this a problem that's now coming from what I, I learned, I think it's like, I forgot the actual statistics, but the, of concern, I think they have, it was like number from number three to number two of like international concern with like movement of people for criminal activity. So it's becoming just more of a concern day by day, it seems. So yes. and, and part of that appears to be this whole demand for labor, right? We, we do have a capitalist economy, right, that has 
constant demand for labor, right? That's a big, a big conversation. So can you talk a little bit about how that may drive this whole demand for labor and how it's happening right in front of our, as as Secretary of State said, right in front of us, right? In our backyard. Absolutely. And it's not only in our backyard, it's that we are fueling and we, I, I mean, by Americans and, and others, every time we purchase a piece of clothing that is produced with slave labor, we are fu- unwittingly fueling it. Every time we, bu- we have a, we open up a can of tuna, for example, we may be unwittingly fueling the demand for slave labor. The United States, the United Nations, and many, many countries have put into place many different laws to stem the tide, giving the credibility and the the ability of law enforcement to go in there and to identify perpetrators. But with such a prevalence, we really need to do more. This is never going to be solved by investigation and prosecution alone. It really will only be solved, I believe, when the traffickers are not making the money. (laughs) I think it's that plain and simple. If there was was no demand, there'd be no supply. So what can we do as citizens of this country or other countries in stemming the tide? One, we can be aware how our purchases may be fueling or or not fueling human trafficking. There are organizations that are out there that are starting to rank the ability of manufacturers to be, you know, slave-free in their processes. And there are laws in place, the Modern Day Slavery Act, Australia, United Kingdom, our California laws, our program on the Executive Order 13627, strengthening protection against trafficking in persons in federal contracts. Congress passed the the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act of 2020. It's understanding that we now have some member states involved in the producing of the utilization of slave labor in the production of goods or sanctioning it. And we need to do a better job of understanding, for example, if the Uyghur community is enslaved in China, what goods are coming from there? How can we ensure that those goods are not painted with slave labor and make our purchases accordingly, make our investments accordingly? You have the ESG probably going to mess that up, but it's basically good governance in corporations. So if you're making an investment in a a stock that's traded on the uh, New York Stock Exchange, look for that ESG label. They're concerned about environmental and the rating that they get. So higher ratings mean higher probability that they're not using slave labor in in their programs. There's an organization called Refinitive, and they've done incredible work. They're an offshoot of Thomson Reuters, who's also doing incredible work on working with businesses to understand how 
their operations may be tainted by slave labor and how their investments may be tainted by slave labor. There's an organization called Freedom Seal, which is just that. It's giving a seal of approval to those companies that are adhering to policies that are cognizant of the fact that they're not going to have slave labor. So that means in their contracts, in their um, contracts with subcontracts and the subcontractors, having places for people that are uh, victimized to contact to like a hotline so that they can get some help. Uh, there's a lot more of this going on. Uh, we need due diligence by companies when they're making their investment decisions on you know, companies or countries or regions, industries that may be unwittingly utilizing slave labor. The International Labor Organization is also working with many countries to uh, end child labor, forced labor by 2025. And they're doing incredible work. So groups like mine, CSTIP, Committees Stop Trafficking in Persons, we are trying to raise awareness with government officials on how they can develop these programs and policies, again, to attend to the illicit profiteering and prevalence of victimization. And they can expand it to talk about the perpetrators as well as the victims. And we are trying to put together a program at the United Nations during the Commission on the Status of Women which is happening in March. We're partnering with the International Labor Organization. We are working with Thomson Reuters on that program, and we just we will probably be working with other UN agencies and member states to utilize the opportunity at the United Nations in March of all these government officials coming in to talk about issues relating to women and girls and to really strengthen the idea of expanding their programs and policies to include bankrupting the business of human trafficking. So interestingly, you mentioned women and girls highlighted that. I wondered if you could give us some of the current statistics regarding the number of girls or children and I saw a billboard uh, recently where they said, you know, boys are trafficked too. So could you give us some of the latest stats? Sure. These are stats from the International Labor Organization, which I think is a lot more detailed at this point. As was mentioned before in Anthony Blinken's statement, as well as what I mentioned before, 27.6 million people in situations of forced labor on any given day. Women and girls make up 11.8 million of the total in forced labor. And that includes both forced labor and sex trafficking in their de definition. More than 3.3 million of all those in forced labor are children. And according to the statistics that were just uh, released by the UNODC a couple of days ago, they released statistics on the number of cases reported, and they profile those cases on various ways. 
So as one might expect, we're seeing more boys, for example, in forced labor and more girls in sex trafficking. That's usually the way it goes. But those numbers, we do have boys in sex trafficking as well. Just horrific, whether it's a boy or a girl. Uh, a story comes to mind that I came across in the news where there was an indictment of a number of, I want to say farmers, who was found to be paying migrant workers cents on the dollar. And then you have the phenomenon of the unaccompanied children who are showing up at our borders. And I had the pleasure and the honor of working some of those, being exposed to some of that work and came across some stories where children are being released to sponsors who are in different different levels of life, different places of labor. And you can only imagine like what is taking place. This is part of the way that some of this labor is coming through and people are probably finding themselves in situations like this. You know, you have not only forced labor on farms from the migrants, uh, you know, in, in the agricultural industry, but the other horrendous thing is some of these perpetrators not only are using slave labor in the agricultural activities, but they're also bringing in girls to service those migrant workers in sex trafficking. It's such a vicious cycle. But, you know, the good news is, I think, it's such a horrific issue. And if we were to only focus on the ills we would never get to the solutions. And the issues or the good news, I believe, is that there is a lot more awareness about the issue of human trafficking. And the United States and the United Nations have done an incredible job in working with governments to raise that awareness in their programs and policies. It's not ended yet, but I think we are on pretty much the right tracks. I think there are organizations that are promoting the bankrupting business of human trafficking, the OSCE, and I think that stands for the Office of Security. Val Ritchie is doing incredible work throughout the world on raising this idea of law enforcement working together, following the money, just working incredibly hard to try to make that happen. Thomson and Reuters and uh, Ernst & Young have formed a partnership to address alerting businesses and working with businesses in, in implementing modern day slavery acts that are becoming more and more prevalent throughout the world. We have more laws. We do have more targeted laws too, like some of these that work in preventing the forced labor the utilization of contractors that don't have a forced labor policy in place. You know, all the contractors that are working in the U.S. government, and we're a large employer. We contract with many, many different companies. They have to have, over a certain size business, they have to have a program in place that addresses human trafficking. That's a big, big, big gift. The financial industry, well aware of this now, FinCEN is promoting uh, different policies and programs to help in understanding investment risk, understanding 
improvements in the SARS, the suspicious activity reports that allows law enforcement to work. Law enforcement is engaging in more and more follow the money techniques and companies are working with them. There's many, many things on the horizon that makes me feel a lot more positive than when I entered this topic in 2009. In 2009, we only talked about this is a big problem. Today, we're talking about, yes, this is a big problem. And what are we doing to stop it? Much, much different. And how can we stop it together? It's an important concept. So I wanted to bring in in the next part of our conversation, because a lot of our, we have on my last check, listeners in 41 countries. And so I wanted to talk about how to get the conversation now centered around the people who are actually being trafficked from overseas. And what are some recommendations that you may have for people who might naively find themselves in situations where they are being trafficked? I think there's a couple of things that people can do to prevent themselves from being trafficked. And this is, again, it's a victim-centered approach, but it shouldn't be the only approach. Governments can do more to make people aware of some of the issues. You know, the Philippines exports a lot of its people to work in other countries. They have exporting before somebody leaves the country, they are providing training to those people. I don't know if that's know 100% across the board, but I do know that that policy is in place. So things like that are important for governments to do. It's to do and you mentioned this in your original podcast on the topic. Do your due diligence. Do your research before you, you accept a job. If it's too good to be true, it probably isn't. That's one of the other things to remember in life, I think. The other thing is that there is a stigma associated in many, many countries when a woman or or a girl or a boy, for that instance, has been exposed to sex trafficking. And I think that we have to do a better job. And the other thing to mention is corruption at the local level is part and parcel of human trafficking. Human trafficking doesn't happen without corruption somewhere along the line, whether it's, you know, giving a border cop, you know, a bribe to get these people across or whatever, or to look the other way in a community where the farming is happening and slave labor is being utilized. There's all different ways that corruption is part and parcel of this. We can also on a day-to-day basis, advocate for those things that are going after the corruption. We can advocate for policies and programs and politicians that want to stem the tide of corruption. And what are they doing about it? We can inform ourselves. I think that people coming to this country, they need to recognize that if they're going to be paying a trafficker, to get them across the border, there's no guarantee necessarily that they're going to wind up in good hands. And that's any border, not just the United States. 
it's a, just a horrendous issue. And I do wish that more countries would make sure that any, anybody leaving the country is aware of red flags regarding human trafficking. And if a person gets into that situation, what should they do in order to get out of that situation? And I think in many cases that has to be defined. Here in the United States, we have a U.S. trafficking hotline. We have the, the National Center for Missing Children. Oh, is it NITMIC, National Center yeah, for Missing NITMIC. and Exploited Children? Yes, that they get lots of calls too from regarding this issue. We have to do a better job of having, where can somebody go if they're in that situation? There are training programs online. Uh, we have children programs. ECPAT has a wonderful program, uh, training course of teachers and students and parents on how to prevent online exploitation. And that's another way that people are trafficked per se. They get into a situation online and uh, the next thing they know, they're being sexually exploited and abused and, and sold into slavery. It goes on and on and on. What can we do on from a demand side to stop our purchases? What can a, an, a company like I believe it was Visa that pulled its credit cards from websites that were exploiting children and people that were being trafficked. You know, there, there's so many different ways that we can help a victim to, to recognize that they may be going into a situation, but it really has to be more involved than just that, in my mind. So the other thought that's coming to me now is what are your thoughts on the global or globalization in general that perhaps might be contributing to some of the root causes why people want to leave in the first place, right? People leave their their homes for many, many different reasons. And, you know, we're all, unless we were born in this country, you know, our, our ancestors were indigenous to this country. Majority of us in the United States have an immigrant background. My father came to this country in 1948, and all of my grandparents came to this country, uh, I believe, at around the turn of the century. I only knew one of my grandparents, and that was my father's mother, who also came here in 1948. They came because they were persecuted and war. They both survived the Holocaust. My father was actually a slave laborer in the Nazi regime in the ghettos. And they left because they survived and they felt that this was going to be a better opportunity for them than what was there. And I think everybody that comes to this country, they're searching a life that's going to be more secure peace-free, better opportunities, you know, keeping food in their mouth and a roof over their head. I think we all come here for basically the same reason, and that's the opportunity for a safe and uh, productive life. So I don't think leaving the country is and globalization is necessarily 
looking at those records is, are going to help us get any further. This is a problem that's a crime. People are in it to make money. Uh, you know, uh, my husband was a compliance officer for a major international company, and they talked about there's only uh, three things that crimes are committed for, and that is money, power, or sex. And with trafficking, you usually have all three. So I, I think that's what we need to go after. Yes. So I know that um, the TVPA is big in the United States. And as you mentioned, it was during uh, President Obama's administration where the focus started being on really looking at the conditions here in the U.S., what's going on in our own. Because I guess it was more outward facing, right? The TIP report tends to be measuring what's going on in other countries. But now we've really taken some time into looking as to what's going on in our ground. So I wonder then, you know, it's taking place in our backyard. I hear that it's in all 50 states. People are coming through international hubs such as the airports. Uh, they're coming across our borders, unaccompanied minors, people crossing uninspected and, uh, you know, getting in our country. And it, I'm not even quite sure if we're able to really truly measure the numbers of people who might be here in the U.S. Uh, who have been trafficked or smuggled in and who have presently in situations of trafficking, but, you know, we're trying our best and I can see the efforts by the UN and the U S government and others to bring light to the issue. But I want to talk a little bit now about, you know, you mentioned earlier about, you know, looking for a label when we're shopping and buying as civil society, are there any other activities or things we can do to stem or to make sure that we're not fueling or participating in any of this or how to, you know, report anything or be curious when we see somebody who maybe it's a neighbor or, you know, we see someone who might just be just something is not right about a situation and how to maybe perhaps report that. What can we do? Yes, I think we can certainly report if we see something that just doesn't sit right but recognize that we are not the ones to try to stop it and to try to rescue necessarily a person, put them and yourself more in harm's way. I think that, you know, there are authorities, government authorities, you know, police and airport personnel that are better situated to deal with this situation. <laughs> but we wound up, we were on a plane and the stopped uh, unexpectedly in a different city because of issues and it was a late night it was like two o'clock in the morning and we're standing in a big line getting into a hotel that the the airline was putting us up with and at the beginning of the line were two girls and they looked like they were under 18 they looked like they were one was being trafficked for sure she hardly said anything you know all the red flags were there to report that there are hotels, for example, that have policies, understand before you go into a hotel chain, does Marriott have that kind of policy? Then they put it on their on their website. Does Carlson have those policies? They do have those policies. They are Hard Rock Cafe is another one. They are indicating that we are committed to ending human trafficking in any of our properties, anywhere 
in the hospitality industry. So it's doing some due diligence before you make that purchase. See if the what the rating is on an ESG level from before you invest in a company. For example, if you see something, say something, as, as we've learned in the subways, most of the states have anti-trafficking organizations within their state, within the government that works on anti-trafficking. Uh, New Jersey, for example, the attorney general has a human trafficking task force. Um, there's a hotline that you can call if you see something. Uh, there is a national hotline you can call if you see something. I think those are better equipped to handle the process than an individual on their own. Understanding that our goods can be tainted with slave labor in its manufacturing. There's the Department of Labor has uh, an app called Sweat and Toil that will give you, uh, if you download that app, you probably will see some more ways of understanding, could this purchase, is it better buying from one company than another? For example, chocolate. chocolate this chocolate industry has been tainted with slave labor. For many, many years, there is something called free trade chocolate, which is just that. It's being produced by people that are free, slave free. Now, and buy from those those companies. Don't buy from a company that doesn't show that kind of label in chocolate manufacturing. And I, I can tell you that Nestle is one of those companies that has not signed on to anti-trafficking policies and programs. So interesting. Yeah. That's such a huge brand. Isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. So, I, I mean, those are the kinds of things you can do. Our clothing is another example. You know, if you're buying from a organization that sells Chinese produced goods, I'd be a little, and, and I'm cheap, I'd be a little cautious before I purchase too much from them. I can tell you manufacturers like Eileen Fisher have programs, Patagonia have programs about slave labor. You can look at their websites about it. I'm thinking about a movie that came out a few years ago called Blood Diamond. I don't know yeah. if you saw it. And the fact that the diamond industry has been um, spoken of uh, for decades now is, you know, like they have children working in, in, in Africa, on the African continent, mining, for, you know, or looking for, you know, diamonds, searching for diamonds. And I don't know the details of that or how much they're even paid, but I know there's an organization or that sells diamond that um, claims to be conflict-free like blue blue nile diamond diamonds i think it is is what i heard and so that's another one that comes to mind but um, yeah. yeah there's there's a lot of organizations and, you know this is not a a new issue this has been going on for years and a lot of companies when confronted with the issue with the recognition that they have unwittingly been participating in slave labor they do do things about it to stop it so, you know, there have been improvements made 
And the diamond industry is one area. I'm not going to tell you that it's 100% clean because I don't know that for sure. But, you know, Apple had an issue with the manufacturing of the iPhone and took steps to correct it. Now, is it 100% corrected? I don't know. But at least it's more of a start. You know, awareness is more more proper motivator. It's funny as I listen to you talking about the China, everything these days that you pick up and that we've ordered, my husband and I have had this conversation, everything is made in China. How do we, yeah. get, how do we get away from that? <laughs> we don't get away from that totally. <laughs> we, we don't. But, you know, if you want to buy clothing that's not slave produced, you know, perhaps one of the things that you look at is trying to deal with uh, Eileen Fisher as opposed to another organization. Or, you know, you have to start just being aware. Etsy, for example, produces a lot of its, their people are mostly in the United States. They're, uh, you know, the people that are offering the goods. And I'm not saying that they're 100% U.S. based. I don't think they are. But, you know, you, you have a, a feeling that if something's handmade, you know, by an artisan, you feel like it's perhaps you're not as concerned with slave labor. The other thing is we don't need to buy so much. <laughs> you, know, we, you know, things are not going to make us happy necessarily. So it's probably not good for our economy. However, you know, make, make purchases that are smart, you know, with clothing that's going to last more than one season or more than one year. We don't have to have a new outfit every time we go out to dinner or to a party or, you know, a happening. We can re-wear re things. After having this conversation, it's quite clear that we need to be able to cut out get at where the profit is, where the money is, because that's what's driving this huge demand. I know some are working with organizations like the United Nations. They have many different ways companies can work with them. I know that the United States has reached out to many different companies, but I couldn't tell you which specific ones. But you ask about parting words, and, and I'm going to go back to the topic I see hope in ending this. And I think there's a few things that I would like to see still happen. I would like to see programs and policies expanded throughout the world in getting after the demand side and the, the perpetrator side, the business bankrupting the business of human trafficking. I definitely want to see more measure and display becoming systematized in there. When we have measure and display of illicit profiteering and prevalence of victims, we will do a much better job if that is an ongoing thing that's routine. It will become self-sustaining and we will be able to understand if our tax dollars are being utilized wisely in programs that really work. And I would also like to see more work being done on developing an app that gives the consumer, maybe by the CPU code on a product, 
give us some assurances whether or not that product is made with slave labor or it's free from slave labor. I think we need to do a much better job with in, in informing consumers and informing investors of their financial, how they are unwittingly fueling the, the demand for human trafficking. Social responsibility, right? Yes. But that's such an excellent idea about this app that really makes it easier for the everyday citizen who might not have uh, the luxury of so much time to go do research. Because I'm sure it's going to take time sometimes to actually find what we're talking about and to which companies. And and sometimes they might not even have it readily available on their websites for you to know. And, you know, the United States, Anthony Blinken talked about this in the statement that you read. They have a program called PEMS. But it's basically a measuring program. They measure the efficiency of the effectiveness of their programs. Let's do it a little bit more wisely. Let's have it understand if it's also creating, you know, have the measurements of illicit profiteering and prevalence included in the PEMS measurements that are being there. But they they help companies and groups, NGOs, develop they give the funding to help develop solutions. I'd love to see a solution. <laughs> and I have asked to be involved with seeing a solution on the uh, on the app being developed for consumers. I think that's critical. Okay. So this would be developed, say, by the UN or by the U.S. government or some other contractor? It, it could be developed by a contractor, but it could be supported by the U.S., through the PEMS program. That's through the U.S. State Department. Oh, through U.S. Wonderful. But this has been quite educational, informative, intriguing, actually, with some of the information that you're sharing as to what is really going on to get a handle on this very concerning issue. I've heard recently of a story, someone showed me a video recently as to how the economies in developing countries that are changing that is now driving things like this. For example, I I watched a video of a young lady talking about her taking a taxi in Jamaica where she told the taxi driver she wants to go from point A to point B. He picks up other people and drops them off. And then she realized he's not going in the direction that I asked him. Then he pulls over when she's the only one left and she realizes he has no intention of dropping her off. He calls someone and he's on the phone negotiating how much he's about to sell her for. Yeah. And this is happening like just recently, maybe a week or two ago, like this is happening. And and I'm just like, just really concerned for people, for young women. I hear of cases of women, young girls going missing on the island and they've never been found. Right. And so this is quite serious for I really just want to caution people globally. Right. And as well as I know, our young girls and others here in the United States are being touched online and being trafficked as well and and are being used for sexual exploitation. Right. In the United States. Yes, absolutely. So this is quite serious. Please, 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 listeners, educate yourselves. And on people in your circle, and particularly people who are more vulnerable, just be aware. And if you see something, say something, find a number, report it to the authorities. You might be able to save a young lady, a young boy, or an older person's life 
of being sold into modern day slavery or being, you know, used sexual exploitation. And so just caution, protect yourself, your families, and be aware of what you are leaving your countries to get into on the other side here in the U.S. or any other developed country. And and I just also want to say something to maybe some of your other listeners. You know, there's no need to buy sex from somebody that's not willing, that's being coerced, or an underage girl or underage boy. There's no need for that. And, you know, by seeking that out, whether you're seeking it out in looking at videos online people are being raped these are not actors or actresses these are many of these people that are in the the pornography that's watched are unwilling they're being coerced they're being violated and they're being hurt don't buy it don't purchase it and that goes back to your advice to us as everyday citizens, we don't need as much as we think we do. And, you know, always having to just go buy everything that catches our eyes. The Federal Reserve, especially with the type of economy we're in right now with inflation being so high, has been cautioning us to cut back on the spending, (laughs) right? So that's (laughs) another plug. Watch your spending and make sure that it's participating in the fair trade and the slavery-free type of purchases that we are trying to encourage you to do today. So thank you so much for your time, uh, Rosalie. This has been a very eye-opening session, and I hope our listeners will take caution, educate themselves, and try to be wise in their purchases and try to help us to combat and to really get rid of this, as Secretary Blinken says, the scourge in all of its forms. Yes. Thank you very much, Simone. I appreciate the opportunity to share my thoughts. Very well. Thank you so much, Rosalie. Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, Subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence. <music>